Montana. Looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Welcome everyone to this week's 49ers specific episode of the 49ers Plus podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and today we'll be discussing some thoughts Christian McCaffrey had about his time joining the Niners and with the Niners since he has become part of the team and more ingrained in the offense. OTAs, Organized Team Activities Phase 2 of the offseason program for many teams, including the 49ers, begins today. We'll discuss that. Pro Football Focus gave the 49ers an offseason grade based on free agency and the draft. I will share that and we'll discuss whether it's fair or not. And then former 49er offensive coordinator and former Rams head coach of the greatest show on turf, Mike Martz, predicts that the 49ers will be the number one offense this upcoming season. We'll talk about that and some brief discussions at the end about the NBA playoffs with both the Nuggets and the Miami Heat going up 3-0 on their respective series. But like always, it starts with the Niners, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. All right. So starting with Christian McCaffrey, obviously when he came aboard after that first week, remember the first game he played was against the Chiefs and the 49ers lost in a shootout. The difference that he made for the offense was basically immediate. And he was the missing piece that Kyle Shanahan wanted for this offense. It's the piece that they thought they had in Jarek McKinnon, but he couldn't stay healthy. But he opens up the offense much more based on not only his running, but his receiving abilities. And it's still curious to me why the 49ers keep going after running backs in the draft that do not have that ability. Obviously, you're not going to get a running back in the third, fourth, or fifth round close to the abilities of a Christian McCaffrey, but they're picking up players or they're drafting actively selecting players that do not have receiving as part of their game, which has always been curious to me. Maybe Eli Mitchell this year could develop into that more if he could stay healthy, but McCaffrey has unlocked the offense. And I think that in a way or in part allowed Brock Purdy to be the ultimate facilitator of the offense of a pick your poison, find the open man and deliver it on time type of mentality. And here's what McCaffrey thought. And the overarching sentiment, and he did come out and say this, was that being traded to the 49ers was the best thing that ever happened to me. And that's not a slight to Carolina. Everybody wants to make the immediate comparison. Does that mean things were bad in Carolina or he wanted out? The answer was no. But being brought into this team, this culture, this offense, and how they're utilizing him, I guess professionally and or pers- professionally, maybe personally has had a super big impact on McCaffrey. And here's his quote. I was thrown into the fire pretty quickly. And I think early on in practice, when I was in the huddle and I had George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Trent Williams, Brandon, Ayuk, Kyle, Juszczyk, all these guys, I felt like I was on a pro bowl roster and it hit me that this was a special team. And I was very fortunate. 
I came to a team that had built a culture, had taken time to build a culture, to add on top of the roster is, in my opinion, some of the best coaches in the NFL and guys who know how to use players like myself and who have been doing it for so long. So I just felt very fortunate to be a part of something that was already so developed, so to say, and like I said, a culture that was established. And that's all Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch. That has nothing to do with Jed York or the York family. They were the ones that were fumbling in the dark for so long pre and post Jim Harbaugh. And it's not ultimately ownership's responsibility to build a culture. I mean, ownership, I think, has the ability to set a good financial example of perks, amenities, updates to the the locker room, the weight training room, how you travel. That obviously is all coming out of ownership's dime, but they are not the ones that are setting the culture. Now, conversely, when you look at a, a team like Washington and Dan Snyder, who's on the way out, everyone's complaining that the culture of sexual harassment, how they treated women, the cheerleaders, other things that have gone on um, on the team, that it stems from Daniel Snyder. And I don't really, I don't buy that. I don't think people act a certain way because the owner might be a certain type of personality, unless Daniel Snyder was dictating that the GM and the head coach, I don't think Ron Rivera would really fall under that or, or, or follow anything that Dan Snyder was doing if he didn't think it was the right thing to do. So I think ownership gets too much blame when things are going wrong. You know, think of the Wilpons with the Mets. Think of um, Woody Johnson and the Jets, I mean, there are examples, uh, Dolan owning the Rangers and the Knicks. I mean, there are examples where ownership, I think, gets a little bit too much credit and our blame. And I think that only matters, it's only acceptable when they're not opening up the wallets for players. And I'm, I've mentioned a bunch of owners that are in the New York market that you know they're wealthy, that they should be opening it up. And, and Jed York and the New York family is doing well as well. I think they're the fifth or sixth highest valued NFL franchise. But to get back on the on the culture aspect, the, the Niners had no culture. I mean, they had a culture with Harbaugh, that I do that chopping wood, that kind of taking each day, iron sharpens iron type of mentality. But then you got into, you know, before and after Singletary and uh, Chip Kelly and Jim Tom Sula and Dennis Erickson and just a whole host of people that were there for just one or two years and left because they weren't one. They weren't they were They were underqualified to be a coach and they weren't building that culture. They weren't making San Francisco. I don't want to say that they're a destination for teams, but the way you're a destination for teams is be a winner. Chiefs have been to the Super Bowl a bunch recently. That's a destination. If you want a ring, go to Kansas City. Philadelphia is getting like that. San Francisco's been knocking on the door for a while. <clears throat> the Bengals, the Bills to a certain extent, although Buffalo is a hard sell just given how <laughs> north northeast it is and how cold it could get in the wintertime. But it, I think that matters. Winning matters, but also how you're treated once you're in the building. And that's something that I think was apparent 
to Christian McCaffrey. Again, not comparing to Carolina, but just what he saw from the staff, from the coaches, what the um, other players were telling him about it. And I'm sure, or I, I would imagine, that he spoke to Sam Darnold before Darnold decided to come here. Now, it's very possible that the 49ers would have offered Darnold the most amount of money to be a backup slash third-string quarterback, but I think hearing from McCaffrey, hearing from Steve Wilkes, former D.C. in Carolina, former interim head coach in Carolina, why, beyond the winning, why to come to San Francisco, especially for someone like Darnold, who, you know, the ceiling is starter, and the floor is third string and possibly inactive. Although they should keep all three quarterbacks active. Especially for big games. Now, here's something else that McCaffrey said. And this is on Brock per- about Brock Purdy specifically. Brock was an exception to the rule that I had about rookie quarterbacks. I was always skeptical of rookie quarterbacks. But I know there have been some great ones. And he came in right away. And he's exactly what you would have wanted. He had poise. He had confidence. He commanded the huddle. He did his job and he made plays beyond the X's and O's. And that's really all you could ask for in a quarterback. Last quote, we had a lot of good weapons around him that he did such a good job utilizing. And obviously we saw what he did on the field, but off the field too. He's such an impressive guy. He's a guy you can rely on. He's a great locker room guy, a good dude. And I had a lot of fun playing with him. Again, set in a vacuum. This is not pump up Brock and taking smacks at Trey. Not at all. The absence of positives about Trey does not mean there are none. And he obviously didn't mention Sam Darnold. I mean, he was asked specifically about Brock Purdy. Athletes don't have to give weak answers of, oh, I really like, you know, playing with Brock. He's impressive. He's confident. But but also, you know, Trey, Trey Lance is that way and Sam Darnold. Not everything has to... You know, you have to walk on eggshells and and be and watch how you're answering everything because people may seem, and by people I mean the media, that you're slighting someone else because you're talking highly of the person that was asked directly of you in a question. And it's good to it's good to hear, you know, someone coming in, obviously such a big part of the offense, the respect they have for Brock Purdy. And it's not it's not couched respect. It's not respect with kid gloves because he's a rookie. It's not, you know, we respect him. And even though he was a rookie, he, there was no, there's no caveats. It felt like as we were watching it on TV, that Brock was, you know, mature beyond his rookie year. Maybe, you know, maybe the poise of a second or third year player. It could all go up in smoke. This upcoming season, if Brock's healthy from the jump or or is able to play, you know, starting week three or week four and teams have more tape on him and and understand his uh, limitations or what he likes to do, what he doesn't like to do, could be a sophomore slump. But I think everyone is expecting him to build on it, especially the players in the huddle and the coaches in the building. Now, getting back to McCaffrey specifically, the question was asked, do you think you have another thousand thousand season in him, meaning a thousand yards rushing a thousand yards receiving McCaffrey already has done that. He is one of three players in NFL history that have done that. Roger Craig with the 49ers in 1985, Marshall Falk with the Rams in 1999. And then it was a 20 year wait. Christian McCaffrey, when he was with the Panthers 
in 2019. This past season, combined in total with Carolina and San Francisco, McCaffrey totaled 1,139 rushing yards and 741 receiving yards. So is that something he could shoot for? Yeah, I mean, he personally can shoot for anything. I don't think he can lobby or convince Kyle Shanahan or Bobby Turner or whoever sets the substitutions at the running back position to leave him out there. I think I think San Francisco needs to be mindful of how they're using him, especially with their eyes on a long season and hopefully another long playoff run. So to me, do I want to see McCaffrey shoot for a thousand thousand? I'll say yes, only if every game he's ripping off an 80 yard run or catch and, and reception. I don't want to see him gr- to get there grinding 25 carries a game, seven receptions, 17 game season, only one bye week. I don't want to see one of their best weapons worn down for, I don't want to say a novelty. Uh, stat to reach. He reached it already. If he goes a thousand, a thousand, yeah, that means the 49ers offense is, is humming and clicking, but it also means he's probably out on the field more than many of us would like. Instead of spelling him, getting Mitchell carries, getting price carries, getting Mason carries Debo. If he wants two or three carries a game, Trey Lance, if he's the quarterback, if he's running three to five times a game, I think the wear and tear that comes on a potential thousand thousand is not worth it. Now you get into the playoffs and they want to say, use McCaffrey more. Absolutely. Now you're in the dance. Now you're doing everything you can to win each game. Cause it's win or go home, right? It's a one. Every game is a one game playoff. It's not the NBA. It's not hockey. It's not baseball, but I think for the regular season, they have McCaffrey right now signed for this season, 2023, and two more years. You know, let's at least make sure that next year or the year after isn't when he starts to fall off. Because I think the window is open for this team this year, next year, and 2025. Then they have to figure out who they're signing, who they're keeping. They have a lot of good players on this team they're going to want a decent sized contract and they can't pay everybody. So they're going to have to make some decisions, but the windows open certainly this year and certainly next year, maybe 2025 as well. And the window could stay open based on good free agency moves and good draft selections because the, the draft is most important because it's cheap labor. And if you could bring in seven, eight players, that's what an eighth of your roster, a seventh of your roster of cheap labor that you can get good contributions from. It'll go a long way in maintaining a healthy balance between veterans and rookies, high-paid, medium-paid, low-paid players, so you could balance out your roster the way that Lynch and Shanahan want to. So now also, today, May 22nd, begins Phase 2 of off-season work for 20 teams around the league, San Francisco being one of them. Off-season team activities, OTAs, for the 49ers begin today. There are nine sessions today and tomorrow. Then May 25th, May 30th and 31st, June 2nd, June 5th and 6th, then June 8th, and then there is the 40 to 50 day break until we get to training camp in July. So the 49ers started their offseason program on April 17th. 
The first two weeks was phase one. It was limited to just meetings, strength and conditioning, and physical rehabilitation. Brock Purdy was there for that, as was Trey Lance. Phase two includes on-field workouts with individual and group instruction and drills. There is no live contact or team drills permitted. And then regarding OTAs, NFL teams may conduct a total of 10. San Francisco is going for nine. This is considered phase three. There is no live contact permitted during these sessions, but teams can run seven on seven, nine on seven, and 11 on 11 drills. Participation in OTAs, as you know, is voluntary. So between now and June 8th, there will be the media won't be allowed at every instance, every session. I think the 23rd or the 25th of May is the first time that the media is going to be allowed. I think actually tomorrow. And I think Kyle Shanahan is going to speak tomorrow after um, after the practice or after the OTA. But it'll be something to for me to track and to share with everyone via the podcast as they have these nine uh, OTA events starting today through the beginning of June. So now moving to pro football focus and what their off season grade was that they gave to San Francisco. So this means in total free agency and the draft and the grade was a C, which I think is fair. And I'm going to explain why, but we're going to start with the quote from pro football focus solely about free agency. The addition of Javon Hargrave to an already dominant defense is the only thing saving this from a very bad offseason grade. Hargrave accounted for 57 total pressures last season for the Eagles, more than double any 49ers interior lineman. Cleland Farrell defensive end is a far more quietly solid addition to the defensive front, and Sam Darnold quarterback could easily end up starting if Brock Purdy's elbow doesn't heal quickly enough. So a couple things there. No, Darnold's not going to start. It will be it will be Trey Lance. I do agree that the Cleveland Farrell signing, remember, you know, top seven pick the year that Bosa came out. Defensive end doesn't have to start. It could be Drake Jackson starting. Or it could be Farrell. And they did bring in Austin Bryant as well. Now, Hargrave on the Eagles, when it says accounted for 57 total pressures, more than double any 49er interior lineman, that number is going to come down. I mean, he was playing with four guys on the D-line that had 10 or more sacks. The 49ers, I don't think, are going to have that unless Farrell goes nuts, Bosa should have over 10, maybe Hargrave does, and then Eric Armstead won't next to him. It certainly won't be Javon Kinlaw. It won't be Kevin Givens. I don't think Drake Jackson will get there. So, you know, 57 total pressures, and that could if that could be in the high 30s, Low 40s, I think the 49ers will take that just because their defensive line is constructed differently and and I will say probably has less talent than the Eagles defensive line. Not a bad thing. No reason for any 49er fan to curl up in the fetal position to say that your defensive line isn't as good as the NFC champs. But I want to go through the, the free agent additions and subtractions to and then we'll get to the draft to show why I think this C grade is fair. So On the offensive line, center slash guard John Feliciano came in. Daniel Brunskill signed with the Tennessee Titans. I believe that's a push. You know, both were backups. Both, you know, Brunskill did rotate in with Spencer Buford at right guard, but he was essentially a backup. Um, 
and Feliciano could push for the starting right guard position, but I think he would be best served backing up Jake Brendel at center and Spencer Buford at right guard. Offensive tackle, so both Colton McKivitz and Matt Pryor. McKivitz on the roster, but signed to a two-year deal. Matt Pryor was brought in from the outside. Uh, are there to replace Mike McGlinch? Now, that's a minus. It's I think it's a plus when you... Th- it's a minus from an on-field perspective, but a plus from a... When you aggregate the talent-to-cost ratio, I don't think... Right now, Colt McKevitz is as talented as a right of a right tackle as Mike McGlinchey is, but for the cost you're getting him versus what Denver is paying Mike McGlinchey, that could be a positive in some. But on the field, McGlinch solely on the field, McGlinchey gets the edge. That's a minus for the 49ers. Quarterback, Sam Darnold versus Josh Johnson. Johnson had the ability to come back. Jimmy was always going to be gone, so I didn't make it a, a Sam Darnold versus Jimmy G comparison. This is a third-string quarterback situation with the ceiling that, I guess, yes, he could be the backup or potentially the starter. That is an upgrade. That's a plus. Defensive ends. So the 49ers, and we're not going to get to the draft, but the 49ers brought in Cleland Farrell and Austin Bryant to replace Samson Ebucom and Charles Aminahu. Push. Now, there might be a lot of 49er fans out there that maybe have a soft spot for either Ebucom or Aminahu. But for what Ebucom got paid by the 49ers, he did not produce. Omenahu, I think, overproduced what the 49ers gave up for him because I think it was a sixth-round pick. Omenahu was on his rookie deal when the 49ers traded for him from Houston, and he had, what, four, four and a half or five sacks in 2022, none in 2021. So I think Farrell and Bryant can duplicate or get really close to the production of Ebucom and Omenahu. And again, you're getting it... I think uh, Ebucom and Amenahu are each getting seven or eight million dollars a year. Ebucom to the Colts, Amenahu to the Chiefs, and Farrell and Bryan are probably totaling five million dollars this year. I mean, again, on the field push, factor in the the price. That's a plus for San Francisco. Javon Hargrave coming in, essentially replacing Hassan Ridgeway and Maurice Hurst. That's that's a plus, 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 plus. And you can even take it a step further in saying he's replacing the potential that Javon Kinlaw never lived up to. And now Javon Kinlaw is on the second line of defensive tackles for the 49ers, which is obviously where he should be behind Hargrave and Eric Armstead. So that is a plus at defensive tackle. Defensive end or D-tackle D-end. Marlon Davidson brought in late. Free agent from the Atlanta Falcons versus Jordan Willis, who left. I think this is a push. Jordan Willis was never, aside from having that big pump block at Green Bay two years ago in the divisional playoff, he was never a big sack guy. He is someone that you can bump inside to play D-tackle. That's really what Marlon Davidson can bring. Davidson can bring if he makes the roster. Given the fact that the 49ers are going to carry a third quarterback, they may they need to take a position away somewhere, and it might be nine only on the D-line. They love defensive linemen. I still can see them rolling with 10, but it's, they have good D-linemen on the roster. Whatever three or four that they release are going to be signed to other NFL rosters. But right now, that is a push. And then nickel cornerback, so Isaiah Oliver versus Jimmy Ward. Even on the field, I'm calling this a push. 
Now, Jimmy Ward, early 30s. Isaiah Oliver, mid-20s. I'm factoring uh, age into consideration. Isaiah Oliver is now on year two, coming back from his ACL reconstruction. Jimmy Ward has stayed healthy the past couple of years. I think the, the infusion of youth is going to be what makes this a push for me. When you incorporate salary, what Houston is paying Jimmy Ward versus what the Niners are paying Oliver on his two-year deal, it's a win for San Francisco. So again, if you're going to get equal or comparable production for half the price or less, that's what you have to do as, as a front office. You just can't be locked into your own guys. And a guy that's, you know, 32-ish years old, that this is his last chance to get a payday, we knew he was going to Houston. With D'Amico Ryans there as the head coach, as a former 49er player, to come in to set a culture and to help that secondary and defense know and learn what's going to be expected from them, from D'Amico Ryan and his defensive staff, can't be locked in on your guys and willing to pay them essentially for past performance when the, when they're players that are in their late 20s or especially early 30s. Now, Diamador Lenore versus Emmanuel Mosley. I'm going to call this a push as well. Mosley, the more talented corner, but coming off of an ACL, he's probably not going to be right for the first half of the season. He'll, he'll probably play and start, but it's going to be tough to get well before the 12-month or 14-month mark. It's a minus from a talent standpoint, but a plus from a health standpoint. And again, cost. Mosley, I think, only wound up getting five or so million from Detroit. The Niners could have signed him. I think they're starting to be aware of the injury bug and maybe not doubling down on a player. And you're hoping for the best for Emmanuel Mosley. But why push that envelope, especially with the whole Jason Verrett at corner fiasco and knee uh, and Achilles, and they they brought him back multiple times, and it just didn't work out. That that's more that's bad luck more than anything else. But still, let's go with the healthier option. And Lenore did play well down the stretch. Linebacker Aziz Al Shire gone. He's with Tennessee. Demetrius Flanagan fouls or a rookie, but let's just say fouls taking his place. That's a minus. Sh- uh, Al Shire, the better option between the two. It's the reason why he was one of the starting linebackers when they went with three. This is a minus. Again, the cost savings is great for San Francisco. Plus, they have two rookie linebackers that they can factor into the equation of who would fill in Aziz's shoes when the season starts. Now, so that's free agency. Now, the draft, here's the quote from Pro Football Focus. In the draft, it's difficult to argue that anything the 49ers did was the result of good process. They reached relative to the pro football focus and consensus big boards at most picks and drafted a kicker in the third round. Leading up into the draft, I was saying that the most important positions that the 49ers needed to address early was free safety and tight end. And they did that. In the third round, they traded up for Penn State free safety Jair Brown, who may not be a day one starter because they do have Tashawn Gibson on the roster and Cameron Latu is not going to be a starter because you have George Kittle on the roster. He, he probably will work his way into the number two tight end. There's also Ross Dwelly and another tight end, which we're going to talk about later. But in terms of, you know, the result of good process, the 49ers draft of literally, literally other than kicker 
was finding good depth pieces for this year, but then also pieces that could become starters or have starter potential next year. And the only position where there was a blatant opening was kicker. And yes, as a 49er fan, much like you, I was surprised that they took Jake Moody that early. And I don't believe in the third round, I don't believe John Lynch when he said, you know, we were hearing that teams were looking to trade up for Jake Moody. I mean, how are those conversations going? Are you calling up and saying, is any, you know, you hear a uh, GM of the Vikings, you hear anybody that's looking to trade up for Jake Moody? I guess you have competitive intelligence and maybe sources that could find some stuff out, but people are going to keep that close to the vest. Remember, San Francisco didn't have a fourth round pick. They could have packaged one of their fifths and maybe a seventh up to the fourth to get Moody. But if he's there, if a player's there that you like and you don't think he's going to be there the next time you pick, you take him. Is it a little bit of a reach? Yes, but if it guarantees you getting the player that you t- zeroed in on at any position, but in a position that this Moody's going to walk on as the starter, unless unless he has a terrible training camp and Zane Gonzalez beats him out, they filled a starter need, yes, in the third, but again, he wouldn't have been there in the fifth. And then I mentioned Latou at tight end. Now in the fifth round, you know, cornerback Darrell Luther and defensive end Robert Beal, solid depth pieces. Where the 49ers started out in the draft, it was going to be very difficult for them to bring anybody in at any position to take away a starting spot from a firmly established starter. I thought defensive end would have been more of a priority, maybe in the third round, but I guess they looked at, well, we have Bosa, we have Drake Jackson, we brought in Cleveland Farrell, we brought in Austin Bryant, we brought back Kerry Hyder. If I draft a D-end in the third round, where is that person going to play in the rotation? It's going to be tough to crack at least the top three. Offensive tackle could have been a possibility. You have a right tackle, it's Colton McKivitz and Matt Pryor, did they, did they like anyone enough that they thought could have really pushed McKivitz or prior to become the starting right tackle? I guess not. It, this was not a impact starter draft. It's hard to have an impact starter draft when you have a roster that has its starter set and isn't as talented as San Francisco is. So Darrell Luther at cornerback in the fifth round made sense. They're not thrilled with Ambry Thomas. He can push him off the roster or push him to perform better. Maybe someone else gets pushed off the roster. Sam Womack. But Luther, zone coverage, likes to play man press, has good speed. And Robert Beal, if you want to say he's a developmental defensive end, he might be, he's at least, he's at best third in the pecking order, but probably the fourth or fifth defensive end on the roster. In the fifth round, that's great. He's not going anywhere. These fifth round picks have no, they're no danger in getting cut. No danger at all. It's the players that are in front of them on the roster that have to be worried. Now, linebacker D Winters at D Winters out of TCU in the sixth. Could eye up that linebacker role that was Aziz Al Shires and it could be Flanagan Fowles. So doubling down actually on linebackers in the sixth and seventh round, and we'll get there was interesting, but taking one totally agree with Another tight end, Braden Willis out of Oklahoma in the seventh. I agree with that. Finding a number two tight end has been impo- literally impossible for Shanahan. He has not found one. Remember the COVID year? 
He brought in basically the ghost of Jordan Reed at tight end from the Redskins, who actually had a pretty decent year considering Kittle. Everybody was hurt, but they have not been able to. It's not that they haven't been able to find a tight end, at least in the draft. They haven't been able to even attempt going after another one. Charlie Warner was brought in just for blocking. I mean, that that's great, but how is it helping the diversity of your pass catchers in your tight end room? It's not. Braden Willis does that. Cameron Latou does that. I anticipate both of these two will make the team, and either Werner or Ross Dwelly will be off. Receiver Ronnie Bell in the seventh. Not sure how much they love Danny Gray. Could the 49ers carry six wide receivers? They liked what they saw out of Ronnie Bell. This is year two coming off of his ACL injury. Good depth signing. The same thing with Jalen Graham. Losing Aziz Alshire, and they actually have to look at... um, Dre Greenlaw has two years left on his contract. He's a free agent after the 2024 season. So to bring two linebackers in on four-year deals, if one of these two sticks, they he could maybe be the heir apparent to, to Dre Greenlaw. So again... No, Im- the impact isn't going to be there unless there's injury. If Deshaun Gibson gets hurt and Jair J- Brown steps in and makes an impact, phenomenal. If one of the linebackers steps up to make an impact, phenomenal. If one of the tight ends steps up to make an impact of the number two tight end, great. But other things need to happen first for these players to show they have impact ability or starter potential. This draft was about this year for depth but it's about ne- starting next year for starters. And last but not least, at least for the 49ers section, Mike Martz, former Niner offensive coordinator, I think for only one year, and former coach of the Rams, predicts that the 49ers will be the number one offense this upcoming season. And his quote was, when you look at what they do with the quarterbacks, how ahead of the curve they are with their formations and how they run the ball, there is no question about it. San Francisco was first in points scored once Brock Purdy took over. The weapons are there. McCaffrey, Mitchell, Debo, Ayuk, Kittle. And then hopefully it's Darnold. I'm no, sorry. Hopefully it's Purdy. Very well might be Trey week one. Could be Darnold as the dark horse. And Mike Martz thinks Darnold is more than a dark horse. He thinks Sam Darnold can start. And here's his quote. I believe Darnold will start. He was a highly talented guy coming out of college. He was put in a couple tough situations with the Jets and Carolina Panthers. Now he's with a solid offensive staff and a coach who is brilliant with quarterbacks. There are an extremely, the 49ers are an extremely talented team and Darnold being the starter would be a good thing. They are primed to have a great season. And the top five offenses, in case you're wondering, that Martz uh, ranked were San Francisco, Kansas City, Detroit, Philadelphia, and then Buffalo. The only thing I take exception to is having Detroit third. I mean, you could argue KC, Philly, Buffalo, San Fran, any one of those could be in the running for, for number one. I think Detroit, though, as nice of a year of a year that they had last year. The fact that at least looking at Philadelphia and Buffalo behind them, the fact that Jared Goff is a is a pocket passer and adds nothing with his legs automatically to me makes that offense less diverse and less dynamic than what Philly or Buffalo brings to the table. And it's just one year with Detroit. Goff had a very good year, but it's one year. Let's see if that could be duplicated and maybe he earns himself another contract with the Lions. I I would have no problem putting the Lions fifth. I just don't think they're third. 
And lastly, before we get out of here, NBA playoffs. So this is being recorded on Monday, May 22nd. The game three of the Heat and Celtics were last night. Heat 128-102 just dominated from the tip, are up 3-0 on Boston. The Nuggets on Saturday beat the Lakers to go in Los Angeles to go up 3-0 on the Lakers. So let's start with the Nuggets because, again, like I mentioned last week's plus section, the media is saying more about what the Lakers aren't doing than what the, the Nuggets are doing. What the Nuggets are doing is proving they're the better team. They're proving that they were the number one seed for a reason. They're proving that Nikola Jokic, why he, he won the MVP two of the past three seasons. They're showing that Jamal Murray is a stud. They may not have the traditional big two that the Lakers do, but the breadth of the roster, how they move the ball, how unselfish they are with the ball, the number of scorers they present beyond their starters is greater than them than what the Lakers present. It is not about the Lakers, folks. The Lakers were under 500 the vast majority of the year. They were a play-in team, folks. They got hot at the right time. They they and, and to no sh- to no uh, shame of anything, this is not going to be a black mark on on LeBron James' career if they get swept, which they probably will, or they'll lose in five. In year twenty of James' career, them getting swept in the Western Conference Finals isn't going to hurt his legacy. This whole legacy talk is for any player while they're still playing is nonsense. Anyway, Denver's the better team. They're showing it. They're going to win this series in four or five. Now bouncing to Miami and Boston, Miami has been the better team. The Miami Heat have been the best team in the East all playoffs. And it's funny because they were a playing team like the Lakers were. Unlike the Lakers, they lost their first playing tournament game, had to win the next two on the road to make the playoffs. And they've been monsters since they manhandled the Bucks. Granted, uh, Giannis, you know, missed a couple games. They beat the Knicks in six. It was a hard fought series, but you know, Miami scraps and claws and finds a way. And now they're just dominating the Celtics. This is a team, Miami, that of the 15 players they have on their roster, seven went undrafted. Nearly half their roster were undrafted players. Now the NBA draft is only two rounds, unlike NFL seven rounds. So you're, you're going to have more of an opportunity as an undrafted player just because of the the two rounds that the NBA has. But there's so many, you know, think about it in the, in the inverse of those two rounds, how many players that are drafted don't do anything? How many lottery picks don't do anything? You know, so even the fact that they were, you know, undrafted and, and they get more of an opportunity because of the two rounds in the draft, they are still outworking, outplaying, outshining players that were deemed worthy enough to be drafted, even though, you know, the NBA and college basketball and, and the developmental league are playing overseas. It, it's, it's watered down. Like the players that are kind of coming in, you know, yeah, you could say, oh, they're, you know, they're worthy of a top 10 pick, a top 20 pick, but like the impact some of these you know, young kids are making in the league, you know, you do have to wait multiple years. And the Heat, you know, it's, they're an undrafted team, but they're not a super duper young team. They do have some young players, but I think kids out there, if anybody is listening or parents, if you want to pass this along to your kids, the Miami Heat 
probably are not the more talented team top to bottom than the Celtics. They were not the more talented team top to bottom than the Milwaukee Bucks. And with the Knicks, even. But this goes back to the old saying that hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Yesterday, if someone told me, if I didn't watch the game and didn't know what the score was, and someone told me Jimmy Butler had 16 points, and, and then I forget what the, the rebounds and assists was, I would have assumed they lost. Jimmy Butler's got to go for 32, 34, 36 for them to win. Not to say that they don't have other role players that can step up, but your best player scoring 16, <clears throat> you don't expect that team to win by 26. And they did get some strong contributions from others, but this is the team... It's not a super team. <clears throat> you want a big two, Jimmy Butler and Bam. I like Lowry as like a like a number three, a number four. And then they have pieces together that fit well, that mesh, that complement each other. You have players that are crashing the boards, doing the dirty work, players that are shooters, players that'll play defense. Someone, I think I listened to the radio that the Heat lead in all analytic. Almost every single hustle stat that analytics can measure. That's want to. That's what I tell my kids playing basketball. Basketball is want to. You don't know where the offensive player is going. You have to have the desire to stay in his hip pocket, to stay in front of him, to beat him to the spot. It's all drive and desire, especially if you're not as talented as the person in front of you. And yeah, great, Boston... Jamal Brown, Jason Tatum, Horford, Marcus Smart. It's not looking good. It looked ugly last night. No Celtic was over 18 points or 20 points. No one played well. The Heat are beating them every way that they can be beaten. And it just goes to show kudos to Eric Spolstra, kudos to Pat Riley, and the rest of the coaching staff in front office. If you can construct the roster the right way, you don't need a big three. Or Golden State, a big four. I mean, that was kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-generation type of lineup that they put out there, and, and almost all of them were drafted by Golden State, except for when, um, except for Jamal Wiggins and when Kevin Durant came in. The pieces have to fit. You need players that are going to rebound, play defense, attack the glass, shoot, do the grimy stuff. Miami has that. Miami's going to win the next game. Boston has basically given up. They have to have a little bit of pride and show something because if they do find a way to win this game against, against Miami, then they go back to Boston for game five, winnable. If you can win the next two games, now the pressure's all on the heat because now you're talking choke. Now they're in Miami where they do play well, but they let two slip away. You can't let game six slip away and go to Boston for game seven. I don't think it's going to matter. I think Boston is thinking about the offseason and vacations. Heat in four, Nuggets in four or five. A Nuggets-Heat NBA Finals to the chagrin of the NBA commissioner, advertisers, the front office, and us, the fans. Although a very interesting matchup. The Nuggets have never been there. They're the number one seed in the West. The Heat were there a couple years ago against the Lakers in the bubble. And then they were there... Multiple times with LeBron and Wade and Bosch um, in the early 2010s. But they got a team that's easy to root for. They're just playing hard. They're, they're talented, but they're blue collar. It, I think it'll be a very interesting one versus eight seeded finals. 
that a lot of people aren't going to care for. Unfortunate. But that concludes the podcast for today. I want to thank you for listening. Um, I want to uh, thank anybody who listened to the plus section uh, last week. It is still live, episode 39 plus, if you want to listen. But again, thank you for listening this week to the 49ers section. The plus section, I think I'm going to drop on Thursday, the 25th, instead of Friday. So I hope you come back for that as well. But until then... Enjoy the last game or two of each conference final in the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, whatever else you're watching, TV, movies, theater, etc. Stay happy, healthy, and safe, and we will talk soon. Take care.